Live from the Business Radio X studio inside Renaissance Bank, the bank that specializes in understanding you. It's time for North Fulton Business Radio. And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of North Fulton Business Radio. I'm John Ray. Folks, we are broadcasting as usual from inside Renaissance Bank right in downtown Alpharetta. And if you are looking for a bank that is big enough to handle pretty much any need you can throw at them as a small business, but they're small enough to deliver that need in a personal way, a way that seems to be lost on the big mega banks. And if you're at one of those banks, you know what I mean by that. Go to renaissancebank.com and find one of their local offices and give them a call. I think what you'll find is they know how to meet your needs, but they do it in a way that's human. And they answer their own phone and work with you in ways that old, good old-fashioned ways. Let's put it like that. So go check them out, and I think you'll be glad you did. Renaissance Bank, understanding you, member FDIC. This is going to be a good one, folks. I've been looking forward to welcoming David Hearn. David is Chief Executive Officer at Sofer Advisors. David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, John. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So let's uh, talk a little bit about you and your firm. How are you serving folks out there? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, again, my name is David Hearn. Really what we do is we tell people whether their baby is as beautiful as they perceive <laughs> it is or not. And what I mean by that is we do two key services. We value things. We value businesses. We value intellectual property. So that's what I mean by the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we help companies think through how do we change that value and maybe get others to perceive it the way that you perceive your baby being your business and your IP. So that's what we do. We help business owners make a variety of strategic decisions using these valuation insights on their uh, illiquid interests. Yeah, I want to get back to that because I, I admire someone in your business that constantly has to tell business owners the baby is just not as beautiful as you think it is. But I want to come back around to that, David, and how you do that. But let's talk about you for a second and, and your journey and what led to you, What I guess, what lights your fire about this business, why you got into it, why you started your firm? So that's a loaded couple questions there. I would point out a few different things. So what, my career trajectory post-undergrad studies, I started out as a tax accountant at a local firm here called Frazier & Dieter. Jim Frazier was my tax professor at the time at Georgia Tech and got the CPA bug. So I'm like the only person that's not a hell of an engineer from Georgia Tech, <laughs> basically. And did that, got the CPA license, which was great. I was who people would turn to for individual high net worth tax advice or their businesses. And it was a wonderful experience, really great to see how accounting is applied outside of the academic setting. But I always felt like we were in the rearview mirror. We were always chasing some deadline that really had to do with something that happened in the past. And so I always felt like I was driving a car only looking in the rearview mirror. I pivoted from there into investment banking. I went to a local firm. They had offices in Atlanta, Chicago, and San Francisco. So I made a big pivot away from accounting into finance, where we basically did three things. We would sell businesses for commission. Mm -hmm. We would raise capital for them in the form of debt or equity, again, for a commission. 
And we would value companies oftentimes so their executives could get stock awards. And those were the three things we did. And we predominantly did the first two. We were predominantly M&A and capital raise advisors. And so I felt like this was much more driving the car, looking where we should be, which is 90% through the windshield, maybe 10% through the the rear view mirror. And really, it's there where I saw just how useful that accounting background would become from in contrast to those who maybe didn't have such a background, because it's really starting to get into applied accounting. Now, I was niched in that career where I was only serving one type of customer. And so the space that I ended up getting into, which is what I call valuation services and exit planning consulting, for me, it was the perfect marriage between the two experiences. Mm. I still am using my CPA license, whether I'm in court testifying on matters or I'm trying to get a clear picture on what a company's true story is through the numbers, right? So that's that CPA itch and having to go through their tax returns and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I'm still driving the car out the windshield where I need to be predominantly, right? Doing things that are forward-looking, pro formas, projections, very future-oriented, not backward-looking as much. And I got the client diversity that I had missed from public accounting. So for me, it was the perfect marriage of those experiences um, is what ultimately got me down this path. And for a lot more context than just a few things like tax compliance or M&A or capital raising, I'm like a little bit ADD. I've got to have different things that distract me. And so I've got lots of squirrels that I can chase for a variety of different needs for the business owner that keep me interested and motivated. And so that's a little bit of my background and how I got into this. Yeah, that that's a wide-ranging background that I can see how foundational it is for you as you think about like current values of companies and then where they're going, right? Because that's really what we're talking about is looking out the front windshield as to where you're going and how to get there. Correct. Yeah. There's really two items in regard to my career path that make me a bit unique compared to the average. Mm -hmm. One is I actually had direct exposure. Very few folks that get into this space were directly into it. You might be saying, I thought you said you started in accounting, which is true, but I actually had multiple internships in this in undergrad. So that's one item that makes me unique is I didn't, I had direct exposure. And then the second is actually having been on deals and actually running deals and seeing valuation applied when it actually hits the street, which is really there in quarter about the only two places that it really ends up mattering the most. And so those are two items that I think as we, as I practice and my team practice, we practice with that that lens of if this is in court in front of a judge or a jury, if this is in front of a buyer or a seller on the street, how do people handle these assumptions? Because my uh, peers, unfortunately, have a bit of a, and in part of it's because of their story, most of them falling in from accounting only, they tend to practice a bit more academic in that light. And, and thus, they can have some results that don't necessarily meet the scrutiny that, that could come later. Yeah, that's a interesting point. And it occurs to me, as I'm listening to you, that yours is one professional service where the minute you issue that valuation, whether it's on behalf of a company that maybe they're looking to sell and they're presenting that valuation to a potential buyer, or it's a a conflict, there's a dispute going on as to the value of a company, two partners are splitting up, let's say, um, and they're trying to figure out value. 
um, that when the minute you issue your work, someone is trying to tear it apart, right? <laughs> someone is trying to poke holes in it, right? And and that's what you're getting at in terms of thinking practically about how that work is going to be received by the other side. You're spot on. Yeah. So I get clients to think about the Grand Canyon, if they've been, or, or just a chasm in general, like on Mount Everest or somewhere. There's in almost all the situations, not all, but almost all, they're going to be at a chasm and they will be on one side of that chasm and someone else will be on the other side of that chasm. And we're not sure on whether they're going to be on the I want to be low side of that chasm or I want to be high side of that chasm. But there are always going to be generally two parties on each side. And one is going to have a a bias, if you will, or an incentive to want the answer higher than maybe it should be. And the other may have the opposite incentive or vice versa. So just as a quick example, uh, if we think about something for tax, per se, the business owner might usually have an incentive to want a lower answer net because people don't want to overpay on taxes. Mm -hmm. But the IRS is on the other side of this, right? Even though they're not necessarily getting the report right away, but they're who could ultimately challenge this and obviously would be in a position on the opposite side of the value spectrum. And and this dynamic applies in a variety of settings, litigation, corporate finance and M&A, immigration, bank financing, any context where you're going to have exactly what you outline. Yeah, and thank you for that, mentioning that, there at the end, because I I think a lot of people think about valuations exclusively as some sort of that's involved in some sort of business exit, right? That they, that they default to that. There are a lot of different reasons that you may need a valuation for your company, right? Many. Yeah. I actually would say, I don't think a lot of people think about valuation. I think they focus on revenue growth and maybe earnings Mm. and they stop there and don't realize that there's another KPI metric they should be managing to, which is valuation. Mm-hmm. I hope more people see the light and at least think of it in that one lens of exit planning, the way you mentioned. But there are many other contexts where it's inevitable. It doesn't matter what your size is, small or high, doesn't matter what your stage of development is. These chasm moments, these triggers are going to occur. It's really just a matter of time. And that's one comment. So, what are those and so forth? And then the other comment, given your exit planning commentary, is technically you have a trigger every year, right? Which is I should be managing to enterprise value. I should be managing to transferable value, sellable value. And if I'm not, then I may not be doing what I'm intending to do as I track my firm. So let's get let's dive into that and and talk about I think what you called, and correct me if I've I've got this wrong, but more of a strategic, regular kind of valuation where you're, as you say, managing to the valuation that you currently have versus the one you're trying to get to as time goes on. Talk about why having such a philosophy around how you managing your company that way is so important. So when I'm in a room with business owners, Sometimes I'll do a poll and I'll ask them to to volunteer what they think the number one exit planning technique is. And they'll throw out a variety of things. And depending on how I frame it, they might get closer to the answer if I start out too negative. (laughs) But realistically, and you'll see these statistics pretty much saying the same story from a variety of M&A and exit planning 
industry groups. The number one exit planning technique is attrition. It's basically imagine a, a, a door with an open sign and then just one day the sign is turned the other way and it says closed. Or more realistically, I send you an email and I get a bounce back or I get a autoresponder that says, I've had a wonderful 30, 40 year career, been blessed and we're no longer in business. Yeah. And that is the lion's share of what people are managing to, which is to nothing. They're not doing any plans. And then they ultimately don't get anything for their baby at the end of the day. So I find that criminal. That's that eight out of 10 companies are, to me, leaving value and really not, to me, handling your customers because now they're forced to just figure out where to go. Some clients don't even tell them where to go. So my mission is to obviously make a huge dent in that statistic in a big way, if not for your children's legacy standpoint in terms of wealth. And if you have no children, at a minimum, at least your community and the amount of impact that can occur if you do shift your thinking a little bit to something like managing to value. That's a great point about you, I think you, you had a, a double meaning there. I took it that way when you're telling your customers where to go. That's what you're doing in a real negative way. If you're not preparing your business in a way that is, is that offers them continuity. And I never thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense that you're, it's not about just about your heirs or successors or what have you. It's about the, the customers that have gotten you where you are. Totally agree. Yeah. And usually we try and get people to imagine being in the customer's position. And so then they're sitting there dealing with this. Where do we go? The handoff could be much more smooth. And again, we hope that handoff is is to another face in the organization, right? Or or potentially another brand that maybe you're you're merging into. Again, I think again, you you're doing your customer a potential disservice depending on how you treat this. So David, let Let's talk about how this works on the ground with a company. So let's say a company's listening to this interview and they're thinking, okay, I get what you're saying, David. How do I start? Like, I've never done a valuation before. I get your point about how I need to think about that and manage to that value that you help me determine. Where does it start and how does that continue year after year? Sure. Yeah. And the truth is the lion's share of my customers, this tends to be the, the first time that we've done evaluation for that customer. It was their that customer's very first time ever going through such a process. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like when you are thinking about selling a house and, and that diligence stage where, okay, yeah, maybe you got to a tentative agreement on a number, but somebody gets to come in and really look under corners and check, make sure you haven't covered anything up and really gets to vet the, the HVAC and vet the you know condition of the roof and so forth. And so the earlier we can do those things, right, and anticipate what other people are going to find or not and how we can massage that, the better. And so for me, it's just important to get people to start thinking about this. And again, it doesn't have to be this super in-depth, formal, certified valuation. You could do something that's informal. Just the discipline of going through this process and doing it on a frequency, best of breed companies in our experience do it annually, um, that change in value, even if you're off a little bit on where your conclusions were on each year, but as long as that rate of change is ideally upward and to the right, three things are going to happen when you finally are ready to slow down. 
One is you're going to end up with a higher valuation net than you otherwise would have. Two, you're going to end up with better terms. Everybody forgets about terms. We're used to just seeing the number on the house, not reading the more, the closing documents <laughs> and what kind of conditions occurred there. And then the last is you're going to end up more probable that you will sell because most of the companies that want to sell can't, which is why we end up in that 80% problem. They're just not ready. They're not clean enough. There's too much perceived risk and nobody wants to touch it. Sure. So for me, it's just getting them to start. And it could be as simple as asking their existing advisors on who do they know that specializes in doing business appraisals or business valuations. And we can talk about how do you vet those people. But starting there of just searching for people that are in their network and that their own team blesses, I think, is, a, is an important first step. For sure. So at what point in a company's development should they start? Should they start this regular valuation uh, process? So I have two different comments for that. The first is I view it like the Chinese proverb on, it's like asking me, when's the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. But what's the second best time? It's right now. So, mm -hmm. so the, the unfortunate truth is they're past, the average business owner who would hear this is probably past where they should have already started, to be honest. And, but the second best time is right now. But the other offshoot of my answer that I was alluding to is this should apply the, the day you start your company. You should be thinking on putting your perspective in a potential buyer, someone else on the opposite side of that chasm on you. What are they, they going to look at me and think? And how will they adjust their thinking? Right. And so I usually make myself the guinea pig on these types of topics. So I'll say, look, I'm a business owner. I started a company and I very easily could have branded my firm right off the bat. I'm the patriarch in the firm. Let's call it Hearn Capital, Hearn Investments or something with my tie in. The problem is, if you understand valuation theory, there's a difference between personal goodwill and enterprise goodwill. Mm. And we need people that buy a brand. If they're buying a person, which would be me in this example, We've got a problem and people are going to perceive risk. And so the truth is you should start managing to enterprise value the day you start your company. And if you haven't, then the next best time is exactly right now. So in terms of size, is there a, any specific size I should get to before I start this or start the valuation kind of work, but, or does that matter? Again, the smaller you are, you've, you've got limited budgets, right? And so sure. you've got to be conscious on where you allocate your resources. But in theory, no, the, these concepts are just as, as important when you're zero, hundred grand, hundred thousand, hundred million, doesn't matter, right? Now, the bigger you get, the, the more sellable you become and the more real this will become. But no, again, I, again, I use myself as the guinea pig. We applied valuation theory the day we started our firm when we were thinking about what do we even name this thing, mm. right? Do we apply for a trademark, right? Which we did and we were blessed to, to receive, right? Those are things that now we have IP, whereas before we didn't have IP, right? So again, as long as you get into some discipline and it does, again, it, it does, there are different types of valuations, right? So you don't have to spend $10,000 to do this like we, like you would maybe with certain types of reports. There are options of more narrow, more skinny reports, more things that can make the budget work if you are 
in that smaller category, which for me, I would define as under a million in revenue would Got be it. in the smaller category. Got it. Um, you mentioned IP and I, that's, you, it's a good segue to where I wanted to go in terms of the kind of assets and cash flow from those assets that maybe business owners don't always think about. So the intangibles like intellectual property or data, the data set that they have that they use to run their business. Talk about some of those aspects of how those assets contribute, what they are and how they contribute to business value. So I, I would typically get an, a business owner to start with their balance sheet. Because in theory, your balance sheet, what does it show? Total assets, mm. all right? The problem becomes when we look at that, sometimes things are missing, all right? And in my experience, it could be something tangible is very material, but missing. So an easy example of something that happened recently, there's no inventory listed on the balance sheet. But we know if we were to tour this facility, this warehouse, there's lots of stuff. So right off the bat, if someone were to purely look at your books, there might be an under valuation because it doesn't show an accurate picture of your total assets, mm. right? And that's tangible. We haven't even gotten to the intangible, right? Mm -hmm. And I can guarantee you almost all balance sheets, 90% of balance sheets are not going to show the most valuable components of your business, which are those intangibles, okay? Things like your MSAs and your contracts. Things like the sticky customer relationships, even if they were uncontracted, that's the sticky relationships. Things like your brand, things like technology or copyright, patent, right? Software that maybe you've developed. Artistic things, musician song portfolios, for example. And I, in every business, no matter how small, has at least one of these things. And usually you'll see at least the sticky customers. And then sometimes there's an interplay with the brand, sometimes there's technology, but there's at least one. And the more of these things you have, then again, the, the more valuable you're going to be. But again, the balance sheets don't show that, right? So we've got to show, we've got to show a buyer on something that's missing, that, that is real and that it is here. And then the other thing I'll usually show an owner is I'll use the public markets as a proxy to get them to understand this. And so what I'll do is I'll show them a chart of something like the S&P 500, and it'll show it over time in 10-year, decade-long increments. So I'll get them to look at the 60s and the 70s and then the 80s and so forth through today. And, it, what it, and it's a bar chart, basically. And the bar chart is split into two pieces, all right? Tangible value and intangible value. Well, in the 60s and 70s, the percentage of that bar that was tied to tangible was very high, where most of the value of the publicly traded market caps of, the, of these entities at, at the S&P 500 it was tied to their tangible value. If you look at it today, it's completely inverted. 90 plus percent of the value of that stock, that equity is tied to the intangible. So this is an extremely important concept that people have to think about building as they go through in their business. And when I meet really small companies, they don't think they have this and that it doesn't apply. Yeah, it, 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 and that point is so important right? Because these things come into play. You mentioned your own company where right off the bat, you developed intellectual property with the naming of your company, the trademark you received for that, et cetera. Immediately you generated asset value that was not on the balance sheet. I would tell you that 
we automatically were, were lessening personal goodwill value purely tied to me yeah. and, and increasing our chance at value being tied to the business. And then over time, as I got more funds and more budget, then we made further investments in that, like registering the name, right? Because again, you can't do all of this on day one, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. And so you've got the business owner's got a laundry list of initiatives and they've got to prioritize. And as they grow, all of a sudden, something that was low priority becomes higher priority. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess my point is that, again, getting back to early on in the life of a business, these issues come up very early on, sometimes on day one. So it's really important to think in this way as you're advocating. We had a uh, some young gentlemen fresh out of undergrad at, at Georgia Tech here locally. And these people are in their low 20s. And the business is in its infancy, not a lot of traction, and they get into the falling out and one of them fires the other one and it triggered a buyout Mm. by the other one. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, questions of value come up and the person leaving believes that the potential, the technology they were building and that the value is sky high. And the other person obviously says, we're not there yet. We haven't achieved these milestones. So these concepts are either going to happen to you or again, you, you can get ahead of them, of these triggers and start looking at this annually in order to be able to answer not just the 80% of these triggers that are going to happen, but also the long-term answer that you need as you, you know, get closer and closer to, you know, retirement. David Hearn is with us folks with Sofer Advisors. David, um, I want to, before we let you go, I want to get to a couple of things. One is talk about the types of companies that you work with, any particular industries, sizes, talk about your sweet spots there. Yes. So we have several different avatars. We have our startup avatar where it's a early stage entity. Okay. Then we have a mom and pop avatar where they're to me under a million in revenue type size companies that you would see if you're just driving down the road these signs and then we have the lower middle market avatar which for me i define as seven and eight figure companies and then we have mid-market entities which are very large entities usually nine figure and above you mentioned industry again i said i'm dog and squirrel right so i like having a lot <laughs> of distractions i have about six key industries that we just tend to have a lot of experience you know we call them clusters Tech, Atlanta is obviously a very big tech hub. So anything that touches technology, we're in Nashville as as a firm because of the healthcare focus, which Mm -hmm. is one of my big ones. We do a lot of dental groups, physician groups, and so forth. Services, that could be professional service, like firms like my own, could be blue collar services. We're working on a plumber right now, for example, Mm. but B2B service, do a lot of transportation logistics. I I joke because UPS is here in Atlanta. Do a lot of manufacturing, distribution, and construction. And then we do a lot of retail restaurants. So if I were a gambling man on what I think my next call in, my next call is going to be in terms of industry, I would venture to guess it's one of those six. But every day is different. At the end of the day, we're pretty agnostic. There's a few industries that we won't touch. Things like oil and gas, just things we just haven't done enough. You never want to evaluate her that's really willing to take everything uh, because every industry has uniqueness to them. And that's what can get you in trouble. Yeah, that's... That is a crucial point right there. Uh, David, I would love it if you could maybe share a success story, one that helps illustrate the great work you do and shows the importance of regular valuations for 
companies that are looking to exit down the road? Sure. Yeah, I'll give you, I got several. Okay. Uh, the most recent, so I just got a call from the attorney who was on the case and I thought he was going to call me to tell me, we're going to go to court. We're going to need you to testify because it was a kind of one of these chasm moments. Mm -hmm. And the backstory is it was just a gas station owner here locally in the Metro and their property was taken from them by the government. It was an eminent domain type setting. And they, uh, the, the business owner disagreed with the value that was proposed. And we were brought in as an expert to uh, ascertain what was a reasonable value for that gas station. And then the attorney was actually calling to tell me that uh, the value actually increased 800 grand from where it had been. And so it was a material amount. Now, would they have wanted more? Of course, but it was uh, certainly well worth not just our fees, but the time for all sides, including legal to, to continue at it. And we were we were deposed in that case. Similarly, we had another case in San Diego, of all places, where a small financial planning firm was involved in some litigation. And we were actually the la one of the last appraisers brought in. The, the, the other side had already had an appraiser who had valued an eight-person financial planning firm at $20 million. Eight people. Wow. And it was a father-son team. And the brand was not it wasn't tied to a unique brand. It was tied to their last name. So here's that personal goodwill. And we were coming in at a million dollars, right? So 20 times difference from two people who have lots of letters after their names and a judge is sitting there going, what do I do with this? Mm -hmm. And so it gets to any of these stories really come back to three things. Was it credible, the report? Was it defensible? And that's where most valuators stop. And the third is the most important. Is it sensible? And so this judge, even though the other side, to be honest, had a more credible report than me and a defensible report than me because they did a certified level and I was doing an informal level um, because my client only had so much budget. But at the end of the day, sensible won out in that case, right? And so really it's this combination of those three things on what's going to create a positive outcome no matter what the situation is, whether it's an M&A event or a tax event, that's when you're going to find out years from the valuation on whether it will hold water. Is it those three things? Yeah. Wow. Great stuff from here. David Hearn, CEO of Sofer Advisors. David, this has been terrific. Lots of great information. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for the great work you're doing. We're delighted we could highlight that work and celebrate it. Before we let you go though, let's get to the most important question. I'm sure there's some folks that would like hearing what you've had to say, might want to be in touch. Let's tell them how they can connect with you and Sofer Advisors. Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me, John. It was my pleasure. Yeah, we have, obviously, we're on all the different platforms. You can go straight to our website, which is at www.soferadvisors.com. That's Sam, Oscar, Frank, Elephant, Robert, advisors.com. And then we have a sister company called The Val Guy, which, which used to be a nickname a friend called me and I've adopted for our sister company, which is thevalguy.com. My email is david at soferadvisors.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook. We have a YouTube channel now. We never want to spam anybody and just auto add you to our newsletter and all that kind of stuff. So if you're willing to want to learn more and get more insights on this kind of stuff, just let us know and we'd be happy to add you to those kind of things. Terrific. David Hearn. CEO of Sofer Advisors. David, thanks again. My pleasure. You too, John. Happy holidays. Thank you. You too. 
Hey folks, just a quick reminder, if you don't mind, I'm going to, for those of you that are solo, small professional services providers, I've got a book that has just come out that may be interesting to you. It's called The Generosity Mindset, A Journey to Business Success by Raising Your Confidence, Value, and Prices. If you're having issues with your pricing, your business development, and you're a solo, small professional services provider, this book may be of interest to you. If you want more information, go to thegenerositymindset.com. I also want to thank you, our listener. So we're up to show number 730-something, somewhere up there with, with the North Fulton Business Radio. And we've only gotten this far after almost eight years because of you, because you continue to support the show in various ways, including liking us on social media, sharing the show, particularly privately when you know of someone that may be interested in the services or products of great business leaders like David who have been on the show. And please continue to do that because you help our terrific guest by doing that. And you also help us live into our mission to be the voice of business in this region. So thank you so much for that. And here's to a great 2024 for all of us. For my guest, David Hearn, I'm John Ray. Join us next time here on North Fulton Business Radio.